1: Good day and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies hosted by Thara Anjariya out of Bombay, India. Our guest today is Alexander Morrison of All Souls from the University of Liverpool and he's going to make a comparative study of two of the greatest Asiatic empires of the 19th century. Well, of parts of them anyway. Alexander made good use of a South Asian Studies degree and an interest in Russia to analyze Russian rule in Samarkand against British rule in what is now Pakistan during the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century. As to whether Victorian Britain or Tsarist Russia came up Trump's toe, you will have to listen to Alexander's interview to find out.
2: Good morning. Good morning. And uh, welcome to the New Books Network, and uh, thanks for doing this for us. It's a pleasure
3: to have you on board. Uh, not at all. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me.
2: Well, could you
3: tell us something about yourself to start off with? Um, well, I'm, uh, um, I'm currently a, uh, a lecturer at the University of Liverpool. My official title is Lecturer in Imperial History. Uh, but I've been there for four years. Um, before that, um, I was at Oxford for well ten years altogether. Um, I did my undergraduate degree here in history at Oriel College, um, and then my PhD um, as a fellow of All Souls College. Um, and in fact, I'm in I'm in Oxford at the moment um, because I still have a I still have an affiliation to All Souls, and uh, I've been on research leave for the last year, so I haven't actually been in Liverpool very much in that time. Um, um, in terms of, um, well, I suppose uh, um, in terms of how I uh, how I first sort of got uh, interested in the topic of the book um, and so on, and that's actually quite connected to my my personal history, I suppose. I don't know whether this would be a good moment to um, bring oh, that, that pay into pay pay the conversation. <laughs> well, um, people do often ask me, um, well, you know, why did you choose to work on on Central Asia, um, which is a, you know, a good question because in professional terms it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Um, uh, there are not many jobs out there in, in academia for people who work on, on Central Asia. Um, and um, I'm afraid I can't claim any great um, uh, originality uh, of choice in this. Um, it was determined in part by, um, uh, I suppose, family background. Um, I lived in Moscow for five years when I was very young. Um, my father was the Reuters uh, bureau chief there, um, and although he left when I was five years old, I don't remember very much about it, um, uh, it meant that my my parents encouraged me to learn Russian at school. Um, and um, equally, um, uh, um, before I came to university, um, I spent uh, six months um, in India. Um, I was, in fact, teaching at the Sindhya school in Gwalior. Um, during that during that time, um, and um, shortly before I left on that trip, my grandmother informed me that um, we also had some family connections there. So, uh, in short, my um, I think it was my great great grandfather came out to uh, um, uh, Madras in, in 1871 um, and uh, set up um, a carrying company uh, which ran tongas from Mettupalayam uh, to uh, Uti um, and um, uh, so several generations of my family were born and brought up there. Um, in fact, we still had we still had some relatives there in the um, up until the 1970s. So I began um, my sort of um, well my independent research career, I suppose, primarily as an Indianist. Um, I wrote my my undergraduate dissertation was about the history of Uti in the earliest period of uh, British settlement there. Um, I wrote my master's degree also in South Asian Studies here at Oxford. Uh, and then when I got to the end of that degree, I decided that it was time to make some use of my Russian. Um, so I s- decided that what, as what interests me primarily, I suppose, is, is imperialism, colonialism, that I would work on the most colonial of all the Russian Empire's peripheries, and that was what led me to Central Asia. So sorry about the long-winded nature of the explanation, but, but there we no, are. No,
2: no, no, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. I mean, because I mean, a lot of people that we talk to, I mean, they often got inspired, I mean, just by, you know, their personal background. It's not like, you know, just coming to university and finding something in the library. It's more like the fusion of uh, what you did before.
3: Yes, I think that's true enough. Um, uh, in a way, it would be more it would be more intellectually pure to say that you heard a lecture as an undergraduate which, you know, inspired you to this topic and you had no personal connection to this at all. Because, of course, any, any personal connection can... Well, of course, no historian is ever entirely objective. That personal connections compromise your objectivity to a still greater extent. So um, uh, they're not necessarily not necessarily ideal, but I think it's probably better to acknowledge them <laughs> acknowledge them from the beginning.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely, I would say that because I mean, I grew up in Bombay and there's a colonial historian, and Bombay obviously is colonial city. And I mean, I got hold of all these books, you know, like colonial memoirs, you know, civil servants' accounts, you know, and the food past of Bombay. You used to get them really cheap when I was a kid. And, you know, I just fell in love with them. So I'm really not a very objective colonial historian anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, could tell us something about your PhD thesis, which I'm sure was very objective, and the rest of your work?
3: Well, my PhD thesis um, was entitled, in fact, it had the same title as the monograph um, which eventually came out of it uh, Russian rule in Samarkand 1868 to 1910, a comparison with British India. Um, so, um, when I first hit on this topic, the first thing I knew was that I wanted to write a comparative study of Russian rule in Central Asia and British rule in India. Um, and this presented quite a lot of, quite a lot of problems, which I'll go into in a moment. But, um, the first challenge really was to, um, decide how to, how to narrow down the topic, at least on the Central Asian side, because I knew that it was on that side that I would be doing most of my original research, um. And um, in a way, my choice um, of—I decided to limit my choice primarily geographically by choosing uh, the city of Samarkand and the region that was administered b- from it.
0: Primarily because um, it was, in fact, the smallest <laughs> administrative division of Russian Turkestan, and therefore, actually, the documentation was a little bit more manageable. Uh, I mean even so, the um, the fond—that is, the division within the Uzbekistan State Archives—probably had about uh, fifteen thousand files, but still it was it was a bit smaller than the others uh, and also because as i wanted to do a comparison with india i needed to choose a region um, that was well primarily characterized by settled agriculture so if uh, central asian history is is you know one of the most important themes is the relationship between the the steppe and the sown i suppose the um yep. nomads and sedentary peoples um and whilst of course in india there are nomadic groups such as the um the banjaras yep. for instance some um, yeah. It's a much less prominent part of, of Indian civilization. So for the for the comparison to work, I really needed to look at somewhere with uh, settled agriculture and actually in this instance, um, also an extensive system of artificial irrigation um, as well, which in turn led me to, uh, on the Indian side, concentrate primarily on Punjab and northwestern India, areas where um, canal irrigation was quite important as well, um, as I considered this, this would help with the comparison.
1: Um, Actually, you uh, started off with a note on sources, and that's actually pretty interesting. Would you tell us something more about the methodology, about what you consulted?
0: Um, Yes, of course. Well, um, in part, you know, this project is was prompted, I suppose, or at any rate, was made possible by what's known as the, the archival revolution in Russian history. So really, up until 1991, whilst there was some limited access to archives in Moscow and St. Petersburg for Western scholars, um, all the other archives of the former USSR, including the, the, the national archives of the various constituent republics, were completely closed to outside researchers. Um, and in 1991, um, pretty much all of them, with the exception of Turkmenistan, um, opened up. So in fact, by the time I began my research, which was in the summer of 2001. Um, this had already been going on for, for 10 years or so, although um, actually very little had been published on the basis of this material because, well, academic academic life moves slowly and it takes often takes 10 to 15 years between the start of a, a project and publication. Um, So what I knew I wanted to concentrate on from the very beginning was the records that were held in the Central State Archive of the Republic of Uzbekistan uh, in Tashkent, which basically incorporates all the administrative materials of the former Turkestan governor-generalship of the Russian Empire in that region, (laughs) um, together with uh, some central records um, from Moscow and St. Petersburg. So what you tend to find, the division is not quite the same as that between, say, uh, Delhi and London in Indian records, because there you find a lot of duplicate material, all of which relates to a high political sphere, and um, then very often you need to get down to, to local archives to get a, a better idea of what's going on in the field. But in the Soviet period, um, really all local records were centralized in the capitals of the, the various republics. So. Um, uh, the archive in Tashkent also contained the materials from Samarkand, from Jizak, a lot of the materials from Khujand, which is in fact now in Tajikistan. Um, and these gave, um, well, not quite a sort of a worm's eye view of colonial rule, but at any rate, um, the viewpoint of local officials rather than policy makers in St. Petersburg. Naturally, one needs a combination of both, but. Um, so that was the that was I suppose the centre of um, of my um, my research. Now of course, local or not, these are still the records of the colonial administration, and uh, virtually all the material I used was in Russian, um, and um, you don't get much in the way of what you might call well voices from below. Um, I suppose with um, the only exception being. Petitions and one finds an awful lot of petitions um in the archive, um and these are usually written uh in Turkic um in the Arabic script. They've been been translated into Russian. I was working with the translations, not with the originals. Um but even these really are very difficult to use because um, People write petitions when they want something from the state, uh, and they use the language and the arguments that they think they need to use to get that thing that they want, to get the state to intervene on their side. So you can get some insight, I suppose, into – well, you can get some a blurred insight into local politics, into um I suppose, certain economic and social questions, um, but you don't get a very clear sense necessarily of what people actually thought about Russian colonial rule, for instance. Um, So... um, you know, all of those caveats aside, I nevertheless thought that the material was sufficiently rich um, uh, to, you know, be sufficient to form the core of my book. Not least because the book is really about the Russian colonial administration itself. Um, I didn't set out to write uh, an economic and, and social history of the Samarkand region because uh, you need a different kind. You need different sets of sources for that, and you also need to use many, many more sources in the vernacular languages, whether Turkic or, or Persian. Um, so. Um, so, as I say, alongside the material from the Uzbekistan archive, there's material from the Central State Historical Archive in St. Petersburg, which has uh, records of the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, some personal papers of the first Governor-General of Turkestan, uh, Konstantin Petrovich von Kaufmann. Uh, then there's the Military Historical Archive in Moscow, which I use primarily, actually, to compile uh, prosopographies of Russian administrators. So, you know, again, looking at Indian historiography, I saw we, knew, we know an extraordinary amount about the ICS partly because there weren't very many of them, but, you know, we know who these men were, we know where they went to school, we know where they went to university, their social background, their, I suppose, mental world, and we didn't seem to know anything um, similar about Russian administrators. so I set out to find out, you know, who they were, where they came from, and for that I used materials, um, mainly in Moscow. And then I made some limited use, and I say limited um, because I don't want to make any great claims for this, um, of Islamic sources from the region, so chronicle uh, literature, Um I can read Persian up to a point, not terribly well, <laughs> um, So, um, and in some cases also there are chronicles which have not only been published but, but translated. So I used a few accounts of the Russian conquest um, in the works by um, uh, Miza Shigavul Dadkha Tashkandi, uh, Miza Abdelazim Sami, uh, Ahmadi Danish, um, and um, uh, also uh, Mirza um, um, Muhammad Saleh, Hoja Tashkandi, all of whom write to some extent about the Russian conquest. Um, Ahmadid Danish and Mirza Sami write a lot about the internal politics of, of Bukhara. Um, so there's a certain amount of material in there, but primarily it's based upon uh, archival material and, of course, on published sources, memoir literature. Quite a lot of the administ- administrators in Turkestan wrote memoirs of one kind or another. or um, And there's also, as in India, a large body of what you might call Professional literature, so officers writing about their experiences of administration, um, you know, for the benefit of, of other people um, in the same business.
1: Um, so what's the result of your findings? I mean, putting together all this, uh, how does like Russian rule in Samarkand well stack up with British rule in Punjab?
0: <laughs> well, if um, I mean the overall conclusion, I mean I have to say, I mean I, I some of the statements I made in the the published conclusion of the book, I think yeah. perhaps are a little overblown. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Now I look back on them with the benefit of well three years of hindsight. I suppose it doesn't take very long for you to to start mm-hmm. uh, distrusting your own earlier ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think the basic points I made, which is that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although I mean, it's quite common for um, historians of British India to say that the well, the British Indian state was not terribly effective. It didn't penetrate very far into Indian society. It was quite easily manipulated by Indians. All of which I think, at, you know, the basic level is true in the sense that it um, wasn't necessarily a case, you know, that the viceroy said something and it then happened. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, compared with Russia, um, British rule had rather more traction, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this in certain. You see this in the most basic functions of the state, namely the extraction of tax. Um, uh, I think we, all, you know, we all know that um, that's that's sort of, I suppose, the the, the the first the first way in which you judge the effectiveness of the state, the control it has over society, is its ability to extract surplus uh, value okay. from it. Yep. And um, the British state in India was much better at doing this than the Russians <laughs> were in Turkestan. Um, partly, this was the result of uh, a bigger knowledge deficit, I think, in the Russian case. Um, they knew less about the society they were ruling over, partly because they hadn't been ruling over it for so long, partly because they could throw fewer resources at finding out about it, um, and partly it was a deliberate policy because the Russians were well, almost paranoid, I would say, about the yeah. possibility of Islamic revolt in this region, yeah. something which I think was derived from their, in part from their previous experiences fighting in the Caucasus, where they faced, well, what they thought was, at any rate, about 40 years of Islamically inspired resistance. In fact... Um, there are relatively few instances of um, uh, Islamically-inspired resistance to Russian rule in Central Asia, but this doesn't prevent them from worrying about it. So one of the first things the Russians did when they arrived was to cut the tax take from the har- well, haraj, the basic tax on crop on the harvest, um, by a half. Um, and they didn't even really succeed in collecting most of that. Um, I think the other area where you see this, this lack of traction, I suppose, is in, well, the creation of the more... Sort of more grandiose projects for producing what's often called colonial knowledge, by which I understand things like censuses, law codes, um, administrative forms of knowledge which actually have a real, you know, significant impact um, on um, local society in which they're implemented. and the Russians do carry out one census in Central Asia, part of the all imperial census of 1897, but only one. And it takes place a good uh, 30 years after the first comprehensive mm-hmm. census in India. Um, and they never succeed really in revising local legal practices, for instance. There's no equivalent of the Code of Anglo Mohammedan Law, which the, yeah. the, the British introduced um, in India. Um, yeah. So those were some of my overall conclusions. I suppose that um, I thought the Russian state was weaker, um, that it was less effective, um, that um, and you know, and this is visible in um, uh, yes, a sort of a very unbalanced um, sort of. Fiscal system basically. They collected far less in taxes than they were spending in the region. Where I need to qualify my conclusion, I mean, I, is if you like, the, the rapacity or the success of the British state in extracting surplus value from India is considerably greater in the first half of the 19th century, i.e., before the Russians have actually arrived in Central Asia, than in the second half. So it's certainly true to say that when the British took over areas in the, the late 18th or the early 19th centuries, um, they um, often raised tax levels quite significantly, they screwed a great deal of surplus value, well, in some cases not surplus because they often cause famines by doing this, um, out of the local population. Um, but by the late 19th century, um, the, the rate of return from the land tax had fallen very significantly in India and the government of India was suffering similar budget problems to those um, in, in Turkestan. Um, so that's one qualification I think I would, I would need to make.
1: Is that- very often the argument like coming from British Indian historians is not that they taxed heavily, but that they collected regularly, which was something that, you know, like other Indian rulers had never done.
0: Hmm. Yes, which I think is which I think is yeah. quite possibly true. I mean yeah. that's that's the argument I think that's made by Eric Stokes amongst others. Yeah. Um and I think it's probably correct that um the British would often arrive in the region they would see a notional level of tax which had existed under the Mughals or whichever state had succeeded them. Um and then they would believe that they were entitled to claim this in full, whereas in fact there have been you know, practices that allowed um, tax to be lightened or um, remitted for a few years and they simply um, ignored, trampled over these. But I think we also have to bear in mind that um, there is a strong sort of element, particularly in the, up until I suppose the 1840s, 1850s, of what we might call sort of simply fiscal greed. In British policy in yeah. India, you know, from the 1750s, they've realised that um, collecting tax is almost as profitable as engaging in trade um, in India, and um, quite a lot of people, indeed, you know, sort of make personal fortunes out of this by acting as tax farmers um, uh, um, or by pocketing um, uh, uh, part of the tax take um, illegally. Um, and there's certainly some evidence to suggest that, for instance, when Lord Dalhousie is implementing his doctrine of lapse in the early part of the 19th century, he has an eye on the amount of revenue he thinks these territories will bear. Now, I've never found any evidence of the Russians making these kinds of calculations, profit profit and loss, Um, partly because, of course, um, uh, those who ultimately picked up the bill for this, uh, taxpayers, largely in European Russia, had absolutely no say in the political system themselves until the um, the, the very beginning of the 20th century. Um, And uh, partly because I think the the military ethos uh, within the Russian Empire was even stronger than in the case of British India. So priority was always given to um, what, what was thought to be military expedient, almost regardless of how much it was going to cost.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, because you have an interesting comment here on page 291. It says it is going too far to say that it is a sign of virtue when a colonial power makes a substantial loss from its colony.
0: Well, yes, because, yeah. of course, you know, the... the, the yeah. um, well if we're going to get into a philosophical debate virtue of course has to be yeah. about intention as well as outcome and <laughs> um uh, i think i don't think any colonial power ever set out to make a loss mm-hmm. um and um, in any case um a fiscal loss is one thing, but you have to also to look at um, uh, what's happening in. Well, you have to look at things like terms of trade to try to work out whether there is an unequal economic um, relationship which exists, even if um, overall the colonial state is not doing terribly well out of this. Um, so. In the case of India, I mean, clearly there were plenty of deficit years where the government of India had to be bailed out um, from home, although often in in the form of, generally in the form of loans, which then had to be Mm -hmm. paid back and so on. And, you know, this can feed into the the famous drain theory of Dadawai Naoroji, um, uh, uh, which is, I suppose, largely discredited now by economic historians, but which still has a lot of um, emotional emotional pull. Um, But there's no doubt at all that, you know, even if, even if you you know sort of discount the idea that the British are extracting large amounts of money from India every year and sending it back to uh, sending it back to the UK, um, but um, uh, they are basically getting the administration in India to pay for itself, and not only to pay for itself but to pay for the Indian army. Uh, and the Indian army is really what makes Britain a world power on land. Um, it has a huge impact. Um, I mean, in fact quite often when the Indian Army is called upon to fight in a global conflict, most obviously the First World War, it doesn't necessarily prove terribly effective, partly because the British have not always invested enough in in modernizing it, bringing it up to date. But um, it remains, um, you know, it wouldn't have been possible, for instance, for Britain to have um, become the military power it did in the 19th century without conscription, if they hadn't been able to draw upon Indian manpower, which they used well, as we know, they used it in Eastern Southern Africa, they used it in the Far East, in Southeast Asia, um, they used it in uh, Europe um, and the Middle East during the First World War, they used it um, in North Africa in the Second World War. Um, It had a huge, huge impact on Britain's status as a a global power, and up until the late 1930s, all of this was paid for by Indian taxpayers, not by Britons. Um, So, um, uh, in the Russian case, um, I mean, I think they would have liked to have done the same thing but there are various reasons why they they felt that they couldn't um one was they simply thought it was too dangerous to give weapons to the local population this was the lesson they drew from the uh, sepoy rebellion of 1857 um that you know this is this is a very bad idea um and um, another, as I say, was this exaggerated dread of um, Islamic revolt, which led them to yep. tread very carefully when it came to, to tax burdens um, and so on. And another, I think, was simply sheer incompetence. I mean, the Russian state was not a well-oiled machine, even in European Russia, and in Central Asia, where the levels of a, um, a sort of administrative density, if you like, um, are much more sparse, where personnel are less well-educated, where corruption is considerably greater. It was unlikely that they were going to produce um, uh, um, substantial returns in that sense. Um, Now, there's a wider question which I did not touch upon um, in my book because I didn't feel I was competent to deal with it, but which needs to be thought about, which is whether Central Asia was being economically exploited by Mm -hmm. Tsarist Russia in another sense. And there is a common argument that this was happening through the growth of the cotton economy. So, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: cotton. Was being grown in ever larger, ever larger quantities in Central Asia from the uh, 1890s onwards, reaching a peak in 1915, after which it, it tails off, um, partly because of uh, um, disruption during World War One. Um, and this is often portrayed as a deeply exploitative relationship. You know, cotton is being produced to benefit Moscow manufacturers. It's not being purchased at cost price. Um, uh, Central Asia is sort of, you know being forced into a relationship of dependence on Russia because it's no longer self-sufficient in food, and and so on. Now, at the moment, the state of research doesn't allow us to to come up with a very definitive answer to this question, but there are a few things that are quite striking. One is that, first of all, there's no evidence of any coercion involved in the growing of cotton, at least not by the state, Um, given that all cotton growers um, tend to be dependent upon loans up front to tide them over the season until the harvest comes in, there is clearly an element of coercion there But um, uh, uh, in terms of their dependence on moneylenders and so on. But um, the colonial state seems to have you know, really stood back and, and watched this happen. Another factor is that um, cotton was extremely profitable in Central Asia for growers. Um, uh, The level of tax on it was very low. Uh, The returns are very high. One of the reasons the returns were very high was because Russia had very high tariffs on imported cotton. So um, if cheap cotton was what they were after, they would simply have imported it from the United States because Mm -hmm. cotton produced in the USA was cheaper than cotton produced in Central Asia, instead of which they had a policy which deliberately, in, in a way, enriched well, the planters of cotton or the middlemen in Central Asia, and which ensured that Moscow manufacturers actually had to pay higher prices for their cotton than they otherwise would have done. Um, so I think that it's going to take a while before we're sure about this, but even when we come to look at the broader economic relationship and not just the fiscal one that existed between Central Asia and, and Metropolitan Russia, we'll find that the region, in economic terms, Actually, did quite well out of colonial rule. And the fact that the population increases very rapidly in this period and there's a lot of in migration from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Chinese Turkestan, all suggest that the economy is booming, and people are getting richer. This is, not, this is not happening in India in the same period. Um, rates of growth in India are pretty, pretty low under colonial rule, they barely keep pace with the increase in population in this period. Um, and there is a fair amount of evidence to suggest that um, i mean india is, is crucial um, to crucial to allowing Britain to maintain uh, a positive balance of payments in the global trade system uh, at this time, so um, you know there there seems to be a a more beneficial fiscal relationship, more beneficial for the metropole, and B probably a more beneficial economic relationship um.
1: So when you're talking about cotton on the ground level, you're also talking about irrigation and uh, you devoted a whole chapter to looking at the relationship between irrigation and the state.
0: Yes, well, this I thought was, was crucial. When I first set out to write this chapter, I thought this is going to be the most boring chapter of the entire book. It was something I embarked on because I felt, well, I've got to do this because... It's fundamental to uh, um, the economy in the region. Um, This is somewhere with very low rainfall, even lower than in northwestern India or Pakistan, um, and where really artificial irrigation is what makes civilization possible, so you have to write about it. And In the end, it actually probably turned out, well, I think it may be the best chapter in the book um, overall in terms of uh, treating the subject comprehensively. Extending the comparison with India in quite a fruitful way and really illustrating the limitations of the colonial regime when it came to controlling something absolutely fundamental, both to, um, well, to everyday life and to state power. In the region, so um, yes, I started off I think by invoking, as everyone always does, Carl Wittfogel's yeah. hydraulic hypo- hypothesis. Yeah. Not because I not because I believe in it exactly, but because I suppose mm-hmm. it makes a it makes a useful starting point, and it makes absolutely explicit the relationship between water and power, which I think is very important in this context because. Um, it's not so much um, i mean Wittvogel argues that <laughs> Witvogel, as I recall, almost argues that you know despotism leads to gigantic um, irrigation works and hydraulic civilizations, and um you could, or you you know you can turn that argument around and say that well, in a region where you need to have gigantic irrigation works to make agriculture possible, only a despotic state is strong enough to do this um but, uh, you know, in a way, the, I mean, his, he was thinking of ancient Egypt, I suppose, primarily. But, the, um, but this analogy uh, rather falls down in the Central Asian case, because Central Asian states historically have mostly been rather weak. Um, you have short-lived bursts um, under, say, Timur, where a large and fairly powerful state is built up, and then they often collapse um, almost immediately afterwards. Um, and this is partly because of the instability that's inherent in the, if you like, the Chinggisid system. Um, in Central Asia, Chinggisid legitimacy remains hugely important right up until the 19th century. You know, you cannot be a ruler unless you are a Chingisid, a descendant of Chingis of, of Khan. Trouble is, there are an awful lot of descendants of Chinggis Khan, so you have a lot of competition. Um, for this For this role, so you get sub lineages within this um, and um, uh, what usually happens when a new male member of a, a sub lineage takes over is that he kills all his male relatives. This then ensures that they, this then ensures that his his lineage dies out within a generation or two, and then you have another power struggle so um, there 's little history of consistent political authority in this region. But what you do find is that those states, which are reasonably successful, are the ones that build irrigation canals. And the best example actually is not, uh, not the better known states of uh, Bukhara or Hiva, um, but <laughs> Kokand, which was really a new state um, in the 18th century. Um, and the Khans of Kokand seem to have built colossal irrigation works um, throughout the Fagana Valley, triggering, well, what many historians think is, I mean, is a really significant shift in population <laughs> away from the Zarafshan Valley around Samarkand and towards Fergana which certainly today is really the center of agriculture in Central Asia and which will become the center of the later cotton economy in the region and this is all down this has got nothing to do with the russians this is a mistake that i think quite a lot of historians make is that they tend to assume that well you know ir- artificial irrigation is associated with modernity and colonial states also bring their own form of modernity and they build canals just as the british did in punjab well yeah. the russians in yeah the russians in central asia they did build a few canals but what they built was much less important than what was there when they arrived <laughs>
1: Cause, uh, I don't know if you come across this, but there's a recent PhD thesis on the subject of irrigation and the state in scene. Daniel Haynes, a postdoctoral fellow at Royal Holloway, a British Academy fellow, because he talks a lot about the sucker barrage, which I think you mentioned extensively as well, you know, towards the closing pages of your chapter. Mm.
0: Yes, that's right. I'm not familiar with his work, although uh, thank you for telli- telling me about him, um, because um, I think irrigation is something that is uh, is under researched. Um, there certainly yeah. should be more people, more people working on something so fundamental. Yes, I did mention the. So- I mean, the Sokol Barrage is. Well, really is a, is a sort of Soviet style project actually. We don't, we don't really think of the British state in India in this in this way, but that's yeah. what it's best compared to is something like the Lenin Canal, which the, um, the yeah. Soviets built across southern Turkmenistan um, and which has created a lot of similar problems with salinization for instance and the destruction of, of fertile territory. Um, and um, I suppose the overall point I made in that chapter was that, well yes, British rule was much more effective at extending irrigation. They built these colossal networks in Punjab starting in The 1880s, right the way through Mm -hmm. to the Sokol Barrage in the 1920s. Um, But this came at a price, and the price was that the state exercised much closer control over water Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and charged much more for it. I mean, peasants in Punjab paid a lot um, for the water they received by state canals. Um, it's true that if you look at the systems of irrigation that existed before the British arrived in the region, yeah. they don't really control those. These are basically left to local management. But in India, the political consequences of this are much less severe than they are in Central Asia because these networks were less extensive. Whereas in Central Asia, the Russians, when they arrive, they find these Very extensive networks of canals leading from the Zarafshan, and from the Sirdaria, and uh, well, to some extent from the Amudaria up in Khorezm, although most of that region is left Mm -hmm. as part of the Heathen Protectorate. And they don't know how to control them Um, because the system for distributing water is so complex, so arcane, and much of it is really only preserved in the form of custom or oral tradition. um, They have no means of penetrating these networks of knowledge, and they are constantly voicing their frustration about this because they understand very well if they really want to gain control of central asian society they need to be able to control the distribution of water and they can't do it they're trying to do it by well, by the first world war they're they're drafting a new water law which is intended to well basically to break community control over water in the region um and to allow private companies to come in and to irrigate land um which could then be used um well not so much for cotton actually as for russian peasant settlement which uh, is in some ways a rather more important ideological priority for them because they feel that you know, the region will not become properly Russian unless they can flood it with Russian settlers and as there is no spare uh, irrigated land, they need to irrigate new land to bring them in. Um, but that remains fairly abortive and whilst the Soviet state does certainly continue the tradition of, of grand irrigation projects and takes them to much larger levels than the Tsarist state did, although often much worse designed. Um they don't use these to bring in um agricultural uh Russian, if you like, or European agricultural settlers to the region. Um uh for re- well, for reasons that are largely connected with the, the nineteen sixteen revolt um, in Central Asia.
1: Yeah. And obviously this was a relationship that was like continued by the post colonial states of India and Pakistan as well.
0: Oh, you mean in terms of? Uh, control- uh,
1: yeah, yeah, about irrigation and uh, yeah, about controlling the population through well uh, land acts and things like that.
0: Well, yes, although I mean the situations in in India and Pakistan, as far as I'm aware, yeah. I'm not really, uh, I don't really work much on on South Asia after independence are uh, mm-hmm. somewhat somewhat different, partly because the dependence on the irrigation is greater in Pakistan than it is in India. Yeah. Um, uh, um, partly because uh, in India you do well in India, as I as far as i 'm aware that one of the first things the independent state does is to abolish the land tax because okay. it 's a hated symbol of colonial oppression, which of course has the effect of leading to immediately to colossal speculation in land because it <laughs> suddenly becomes a very profitable investment. But the other thing they do is to break, um, break the power of landowners with land reform, um, and this is something that never happens um, in Pakistan, so I would say that um, i mean the Indian state. I suppose we all know that it has certain limitations, but basically is pretty strong, and that is something that Congress always worked for. Um, uh, it, one of the reasons they accepted Pakistan in the end was so that they could preserve a strong federal state. Um, and the Pakistani state has never been able to impose itself on society to the same degree. Now, this may have something to do, may well have something to do with the colonial legacy um, in the region, not least the fact that. Um, this was always the most heavily militarised part of British India. It was an area where the British placed a greater priority on military security than on the sort of, you know, the the nitty the, mm-hmm. the day-to-day questions of law and order or taxation. Um, and um, uh, yes, I think the Pakistani state has been living with that legacy to some extent, but. Um, you know, it's now, well, more than, six, more than more, far more than 60 years um, uh, since, um, since partition and, um, you know, I'm not, not certain everything can be traced back to the colonial period.
1: No, no. But uh, uh, obviously the theme of, uh, well, Islam and the colonial state, I mean, you've got a chapter out here about, um, well, the relationship between the local Muslim population and the Russian state and the British Empire. So what are the main comparative points that come out?
0: So, yes, um, this this chapter, well, I didn't realize it at the time, um, uh, but um, it's turned out to be, if not controversial, at least uh, completely contradicts um, something which another historian who's worked on Turkestan has, has written about the Russian state's relationship with Islam in this region. Um, so, what I found when I started reading colonial sources about Turkestan is that um, whilst um, uh, race is not... Terribly important, at least not invoked um, all that often, uh, certainly certainly um, not as often as it tends to be in British sources, although it's by no means completely unknown. Religion is cited all the time as the principal indicator of difference between Russians and Central Asians. Well, the Russians tend to use the term um for the population of Central Asia, which means natives, so there's a clear parallel there with the way the British often refer to the population of India, which emphasizes which actually helps to emphasise their own—that is, the Russians—alienness in this region. They are not natives of this land. So, uh, and one of the things that made them—the well, main thing that made them different, so far as they were concerned—was the fact that the local population were Muslims and, therefore, uh, well, obviously um, uh, not following, you know, the true religion. At least for those who were religious, which many of them were. Um, but above all, who this made them backward. It made them fanatical, um, and it made them dangerous. Which had uh, well, it had sort of twin um, outcomes. One of them could be, it could be argued, was in some ways um, not necessarily a negative one, um, which was that the Russian state um, was very, very careful about how it approached Islam in the region. It didn't suppress uh, vak for religious endowments. It didn't really place many restrictions on people going on hajj. Um, They didn't do anything inflammatory like trying to abolish the qazis' courts. or really interfere with religion to any great degree at all. Madrasas and maktabs were simply allowed to carry on functioning. Um, They did this in the expectation, not that these things would eventually wither away and disappear, because they had this erroneous notion that Islam is dependent upon support from the state in order to survive, Um, and, of course, that didn't happen. And When it didn't happen, um, they started to ask questions. But nevertheless, the policy wasn't really substantially revised before before the revolution. On the other hand, it also meant that Turkestan remained permanently excluded from what we might call the civic mainstream of the Russian Empire. Now, of course, Russia was not a democracy, so the the division between political rights in the metropole and uh, despotism in the colony, which we see in the British Empire, um, does not really apply in Russia to the same degree. But there is a distinction, uh, particularly after the period of the Great Reforms, which introduce um, an independent judiciary, they introduce... um, which are regional elected assemblies, and these things are never introduced to Turkestan, uh, or indeed to the steppe region, to the north. Um, uh, nor are they introduced to in the North Caucasus, which is also largely uh, populated by Muslims. Nor are they introduced in the western borderlands, which were considered to be well populated by dangerous nationalists Poles, Lithuanians and so on, and nor were they introduced in uh, Siberia, or at least um, uh, um, only a very modified form. So there's definitely a, a, a conception of, you know, if you like, where the metropole ends and where the colony begins in the Russian Empire, even if it's more more blurred than in the British Empire, and Turkestan is the most alien, the most different, the most uh, distant place, uh, and one where, well, one um, colonial reformer does suggest that perhaps uh, in 1908, uh, ziemstva these these provincial assemblies could be introduced to Turkestan, um, but um, uh, he's told, well. Maybe once we've filled the region with enough Russian settlers, but until then, there's no question of giving the the locals the same political rights, and the justification which is given for this time after time is this region is dangerous, it needs to remain under military rule, and the reason for this is because its population are Muslim. Now, my interpretation of this is very much at odds with that of another scholar, Robert Cruz of, of Stanford University, who believes that throughout the 19th century and in pretty much all territories of the Russian Empire, the Russian state has a very close sort of symbiotic Uh, and quite tolerant relationship with Islam. Um, And um, I think there are a number of problems with this interpretation. It's largely based upon observing how the Russians dealt with Islam in the Volga-Ural region, so around Kazan, a region that had been part of the Russian Empire since the 16th century, and where in the late 18th century, Catherine the Great introduced a policy of religious toleration. She created a state hierarchy for Muslims uh, in in this region. Um, And certainly there's a case for saying that, yes, they They view Islam as a tool of government. Whether Muslims in the region really see um, state Islam as being true Islam, as being um, their favored form of Islam, is another matter. I personally think this is extremely unlikely. Cruz, on the basis of uh, well, what are largely Russian sources, petitions, and court cases, concludes otherwise. But um, I uh, I think that this is probably not the case. But what's certainly true is that in Turkestan, none of this ever happens. Um, in Turkestan, the first governor general says that all of this policy of toleration of Islam is a mistake, um, that if we create a state hierarchy for Islam, we are simply strengthening it, um, and that it is not a useful tool of government. Now, if Russian policy in this region sometimes you know, superficially resembles that in other areas, um, the motivation is different. It's not because um, they think Islam is useful. It's because they think Islam is dangerous. And certainly in terms of the local population believing that the Russian state is um, uh, genuinely, uh, uh, an arbiter of what is and is not orthodox Islam, which again is something that Cruz claims in, in his work on the basis of petitions. I think this is this is nonsensical. I really do. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not an Orientalist myself, and this question can only be answered conclusively with greater use of, of sources produced by Muslims themselves. But certainly, trying to come to these conclusions on the basis of what you find in the official archive, I think is not is not possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned state Islam, and uh, you got in this chapter on the khazis and the judiciary. You got a few comments on Anglo-Mohammedan law. Hmm.
0: Yes, um, it's a curious, it's an interesting, well, an interesting comparison here, um, because in both, both the Russian and the British case, they have to come, they have to deal with what is generally referred to as, rather, uncomplicatedly as Sharia. Uh, and as I say, I'm I'm no Orientalist, but um, <laughs> there's certainly. The tendency on the part of colonial regimes to misread what Sharia is, they always think of it as a code. They basically draw analogies from Roman law and they assume that um, well, there is a written corpus of texts, and these tell you what Sharia is, and this is a rigid code that can then be that is then implemented whereas in fact, certainly most uh, specialists in Muslim law say that first of all it you know what what is what is considered sharia wa- varies extremely widely across the muslim world um and it's always subject to contestation to interpretation um and you know there are uh, there are various bodies of authoritative texts but there is no single code that will tell you um, what you should do in a particular situation. Um, on top of this, um, colonial regimes tend to assume that in any Muslim polity, the Qazi is the sole judicial authority. He's the only person who has any right to make judgments. And again, in many cases, this does not seem to be the case. Um, Qazis deal with civil um, civil cases, primarily with matters re- relating to marriage and to inheritance um, and so on, but they don't deal with a whole gamut of uh, of criminal law. Which very often is dealt with um, under a separate heading by, um, uh, directly, I suppose, by the state administration. Um, the British solution to this problem um, is uh, it takes a long time for them to implement it, but beginning in um, the 1780s, when Warren Hastings commissions uh, uh, a translation of the Hidayah. Um which is um well it's a it's a kind of it's a digest of Hanafi law, but it's certainly not a, an authoritative code that one follows, if you like. Um, which was in fact written by a Central Asian jur- jurist, uh Bohanuddin al Marginani from Margilan in, in the Fagana Valley. Um, this is translated from Persian into English in the 1780s at the orders of Warren Hastings. The original is, of course, in Arabic. Um, We don't know which Arabic original they used. Um, uh, So it it had gone through, it passed through two stages before it finally reached English, and it would eventually become the basis of what was known as the Code of anglo mohammedan Law. So in 1864, the British abolished the Qazis, or rather, they deprived them of their state support. Um, so, Qazis continued to exist, but they were no longer endorsed by the state. Um, and uh, they created a code of Muslim personal law and indeed a code of Hindu personal law, um, which um, was implemented in the courts primarily for, for civil matters. Um, the Russians confronted with the same, uh, well, or similar situation, albeit, of course, in a society that was. Pretty much entirely Muslim, rather than mixed um, as in India, basically decided to retain the qazi's courts, but they did cr- introduce some subtle alterations. Uh, one of the main ones was to make Qazi's elected officials. So every three years um, they would be elected, obviously not in a in a sort of full democratic election, but an indirect election um, of wealthier householders, which turned these offices into. Um, Well, a source of political competition, and certainly if some Russian sources believe, and not not just Russian sources actually, you find these critiques in in Muslim reformist sources too, a source of considerable personal profits to the Qazis themselves. Um, But they make no attempt to um, intervene um, or dictate what sort of law they are meant to implement. They simply say, well, it's Sharia, um, and this means the Qazis basically carry on doing what they did before. um, until 1908, when they, uh, when Count Palin, this this reformer who visits the region, decides that, well, there ought to be a single code of law for all the Muslims of Turkestan, which is upheld by the state and which the Qazis will implement. Um, and he he holds a great congress of Qazis in Tashkent. But the text which he uses, um, in an attempt to create this this code, um, is um, Sir Robert uh, Nervit Wilson's Code of Anglo-Mohammedan Law. Um, uh, translated into Russian, together with a Russian translation of the Hidayah. Um a Russian translation not from Arabic, but from the English version of Charles Hamilton. So by this, by this stage, it's been through three translations. Um, and there's a very amusing account of this, this meeting where this this new code is presented to the assembled Karzis of Tashkent, who say, "Well, you know, this may be Sharia, but it's not our Sharia. <laughs> we don't recognise it at all," um, and they basically refuse to use it. And again, I think it's a sign of the limits of Russian mm-hmm. state power that this is never enforced. This remains a dead letter, um, and the Kazis courts survive until 1924, mm-hmm. when they're they're abolished by the by the Soviets. Uh,
1: that's very interesting because uh, in, in that's sort of like symptomatic of the larger administrative is that. Uh the British state and the Russian state faced because I mean you mentioned that uh, the British state I mean there's a lot of emphasis on training the Indian civil service whereas that wasn't the case with uh, the Russian colonial administrators and was more of a military character but your main conclusion is that ultimately British officials in India were just as ill-equipped to deal with the native administration as the Russians were
0: yes um, I think that's right I mean again something the criticism I would make of my own work here is that um, in my descriptions of Corruption in the Russian administration, well, I suppose the native administration in in in, in Russian Turkestan, which if officers are trying to control, and similarly, perhaps in British India, I'm too inclined to take colonial officials, you know, at their word. Um, I mean, frankly, I think it's I think it's um, it's beyond the bounds of possibility that these administrations weren't corrupt at all. But at the same time, we have to recognise that um, blaming your subordinates um, for being corrupt or blaming Untrustworthy intermediaries such as the, the Tatars or the interpreters the Russians use in Central Asia is a very common colonial tactic to excuse the failings of, uh, of their administration. Um, and also the other point, I suppose, um, and one which I did not make in the book, but which uh, a number of reviewers have pointed out I should have made, is that Corruption is not just criminality, certainly not in the colonial context. It's, yes, it's, it could be, if you like, abuse of state power for personal, personal ends. But in a colonial context, this can be construed as a form of resistance. In other words, they're creating, um, local, for, local power networks which actually protect the local population from, uh, the demands of the colonial state. They're subverting the power of the colonial state for their own purposes. I think, you know, Nevertheless, probably a lot of people do experience this as corruption. They experience this as having to pay bribes, and they would rather not do so. Um, but um, it's a bit more than that. Um, I mean, this—I this, suppose—is linked to, to James C. Scott's classic work um, uh, on everyday forms of peasant resistance, um, where he, you know this is one of this is one of the forms that it takes. Um, I mean. I'm not. I would hesitate in some ways to describe the, uh, the, the 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 officers who made up the native administration, Turkestan, as simply as as peasants. I mean, these are these are members of local elites. If you like, they're not people at the bottom um, trying to protest. They have quite a lot of local power already, and they are exploiting the power of the colonial state for their own purposes. Um, but yes, I think we can certainly see it as, as more than simply corruption. We can see it as a, as, a, uh, as a creative or subversive response to the colonial presence. but coming back to you know the European officers, um, which is what your question was about, um, yes, my initial you know one initial, the initial impression you get I mean there's a lot of legends that circulate about the Indian civil service. Um, they were extremely well paid and they were extremely well, educated. Both of these things are true. Uh, and for both these reasons, they were not particularly corrupt, probably uh, much less corrupt, I would have thought, than the general run of administrators um, in, in Britain at the same time. But then, you know, if you take people with a certain kind of gentlemanly ethos and you pay them a great deal of money, to be honest, then, um, you know, there's, not, there's nothing particularly surprising about that. But did this actually make them uh, effective? Well, Maybe in some cases, um, and we know there are some officers who gain a very profound knowledge of the places where they where they serve and are good have a very good knowledge of local languages and so on. But in many cases, the academic education they receive does not seem to have been a particularly good preparation for administering in India. Um, many of them seem to have made no secret of the fact that they didn't like being in India and um, uh, were there primarily for the money, and you know would like to leave as soon as they could. They often took their pensions um, very early, um, and because there were so few of them, the effective face of British rule in India was never really British officers. It was their Indian subordinates, um, and by by the time the British leave in the 1940s, the ICS has become almost well, half really Indian. Nice. In, in any case, um, now in the in the Russian case. Initially, it looks very different. Um, Virtually none of the administrators in Central Asia had any form of higher education. Um, There is no civilian administration at all. They're all officers seconded from their regiments, Um, and um, there are constant complaints of uh, their low level of culture, their drinking habits, their gambling. Um, their um, uh, inability to understand local languages and so on and so forth, um, you know, much of which I'm sure was 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 was, was justified. However, you find uh, in Central Asia also you find officers who um, uh, understood local culture well, who spoke the languages well, who um, clearly you know served there for twenty or thirty years with with genuine affection um, for the place, even if there were certain things they could couldn't sort of see or understand, um, and. Um, Equally, in fact, um, if we look at the practice of British rule, particularly actually in the northwestern regions, we find that a lot of the men there are not ICS anyway. They are also army officers, seconded from their regiments, and um, they're not necessarily um, particularly well-educated either. Um, and the militarized nature of administration is true in, in both, both places, um, I would say.
1: So, uh, after having made this comparative study and uh, looking at the fact that you' transited from studying South Asia to studying Russia, um, would you say that your future research would tend to focus on the Russian Empire or the british empire well
0: i um i mean i 'm still writing some comparative pieces um, uh, um, i 've been asked to well i've been asked to write a piece um, reflecting on comparisons of russian expansion in central asia and british expansion in india in the 19th century um i have an article i'm working on which will take a little while to see the light of day but which is about the use of well primarily about the use of camels in Inner Asian warfare and comparing um, the British invasion of Afghanistan in 1839 and the Russian invasion of Heva in the same year, both of which used large numbers of camels. And for that, I was, uh, um, I was in India in January. I went to the Rajasthan State Archives in Bikanir to, to find some, find some materials. Um, but my primary focus is going to be on Central Asia. Um, and this is partly because so much more still needs to be done there. Uh, I mean, in India, we can draw upon um, a very rich legacy of scholarship yeah. from the last 40 years. Um, uh, uh, I mean, as you probably gathered, I'm not a huge fan of um, mm-hmm. sort of the post-colonial approach myself, but um, and that has characterized a lot of what has been written over the last 20 years or so. But, um, um, other forms of, well, or shall we say, more empirically rooted scholarship have never gone away. And prior to this, you have this incredibly rich seam of social and economic studies, uh, particularly from the 1960s and 70s, which historians today can still draw upon. Um, not that I'm saying that there's nothing new that needs to be done, but the challenges, I think, for Central Asian history are much greater. Yeah. There are very, very basic questions about um, What happens to Central Asian society under colonial rule? Does it become more stratified? Um, uh, Does it um, become more unequal? Um, uh, Is it, yes, as I said before, is it being economically exploited by Russia and so on? We simply do not have the answers to these questions. Um, But my own um, particular project, what I'm working on now, is a history of the Russian conquest of Central Asia. So, not, I would say, primarily a military history. I'm not a military historian, but um, a sort of political and diplomatic um, and ideological um, history of um, a process which, well, I I would date it from uh, roughly, well, I'm dating it from 1814, which is the year um, um, Russian troops marched into Paris, the year that Russia unquestionably became uh, one of the world's great powers. and uh, am finishing it probably with the Anglo-Russian agreement of 1907. Um, and um, the, um, the, the rationale behind this is simply that um, you know, something, I think we now have a reasonably good idea of the, Say the process of expansion, the motives that lay behind expansion of British power in India. And this is not true for Central Asia. We don't actually know really why the Russians <laughs> bothered conquering it. Um, we've already um, established that its fiscal and economic worth is somewhat dubious. There is a strategic argument to be made, and particularly one about the fact that it, it threatens the British in India. Um, but. Um, this, I think, has been overblown, and it's a consequence largely of looking at Central Asia through British eyes. So the British are indeed paranoid that the Russians are plotting in Central Asia that they might even invade India, or at any rate that they will foment unrest within India from their position in Central Asia, which always worries them much more than the prospect of invasion, that the Russians will stir up rebellion within India itself. Um, but this tells us about how the British perceived the Russian advance. It doesn't tell us what the Russians thought they were doing in the region, and it certainly doesn't tell us how Central Asians reacted to it. And in the end, apart from the period of the First and Second Afghan wars, the British are very marginal actors in Central Asia. Um, they have the odd explorer there, they make the odd diplomatic protest, um, but most of the time they don't really know what's going on. At least this is certainly my impression from reading a material um, both in London and in Delhi where, for instance, they discover you know they find out about the fall of Samarkand not from Um, any of their spies or informants, but from reading the uh, L'invalide Russe, which is the uh, French translation of the official journal of the Russian War Ministry. So, you know, they find out about things once the Russians have decided to tell them. so I want to write a history that um, it will obviously be primarily written from a Russian perspective. Most of my sources are Russian, but will also make use of some of this chronicle literature I've already mentioned um, in Persian um, and in some cases in Chagatai. Though I won't be reading that in the, in the original um, to give an account that's much more rooted in the local circumstances in Central Asia. Because I really see this as a as a series of overlapping episodes, starting with. Um, I suppose Pirovsky's expedition to Hiva in 1839, culminating in the annexation of the Pamirs, and in each case you have different sets of local circumstances, different geographical environmental factors, uh, different local actors, um, and and so on. Um, India will come into this um, primarily, as I say, at the when looking at the first and second Afghan wars. In these periods, you really do see the Russians start to be concerned about what the British are getting up to, and you also see. Than thinking, you also actually do see them thinking in the way the British thought they were thinking. So, the um, the second Afghan war is is triggered um, in large part as well uh, by a slightly complicated chain of events, but as a result of the outcome of the Congress of Berlin um after the um, uh, um after the russo-turkish war where the russians are forced to give up most of the gains which they've made um at the expense of the ottoman empire by the british and the french um they're absolutely furious about this and they decide they will take their revenge in central asia um and this takes the form of um extensive military maneuvers towards the afghan frontier at least that is the plan um and in order to reassure um the amir of afghanistan that um uh, these maneuvers are not aimed at him. They send an embassy to Kabul, and it's this embassy um, uh, um, of uh, Colonel Stolietov which then prompts the British to send their own delegation to Kabul, which gets massacred and so on and so forth. Um, But um, the comparative perspective will also be there because um, I really think that, again, as I think I said at the beginning of my my book about Samarkand, um, we have an astonishingly rich literature, not just about British India, but about British imperialism more generally, where the question of how and why empires expand has been dealt with. Exhaustively, one might say. There's lots of different interpretations. There's the famous um, arguments of Robinson and Gallagher about the scramble for Africa, um, uh, about the role of the, um, the official mind and its responses to um, crises on the periphery. You have the economic explanations of, well, I suppose beginning with J.A. Hobson, who was a strong influence on, on Vladimir Lenin, um, uh, and through to Kane and Hopkins. Um, the gentlemanly capitalists who uh, manipulate imperial expansion to to get the ma- maximum financial gain um and um, I'll be trying to bring all of these into play. What I want to do then is to replace the current narrative of the Russian conquest, which has them either conquering Central Asia in order to get a source of raw cotton, which is a, a classic example of the the the, the, fallacy, the sort of post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. The Russians did indeed try to turn Turkestan into a cotton plantation from the 1890s, but you know this was 30 years after the conquest. There's absolutely no evidence in any. Um, of the, um, any of the correspondence between the people who took the decisions that they're even thinking about cotton or about the, the cotton famine, which is provoked by the American Civil War. Um, and, um, I mean, Central Asian cotton cannot actually really be used in industrial production at this date because it's, it's the wrong kind. It's called, uh, Rosa, which is a short staple variety. It's only when they introduce American cotton that it becomes, uh, useful. And in any case, you know, they, if they'd really been so concerned and, about growing cotton on Russian soil, well, they could have grown it in Transcaucasia, which they already, you know, which they already rule, and where the climate is equally well suited to that. Um, again, as I say, I don't think that the Great Game is the is the main explanation either. Um, sorry, yes.
1: Oh, no, So one final question before I let you go. You opened and closed the book with a quotation from Curzon. So I think we should close off this interview with Curzon. Um, we all know his views on the Russians, but uh, what did the Russians think of him? What was the reaction when he became Viceroy of India?
0: Well, it's a good question, actually. Um, uh, apart from anything else, I suppose. Was- I, unless i 'm much mistaken, the Russians actually had a spy in the Viceregal Lodge um, during Curzon's viceroyalty. I found one or two documents in the um, archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs where I mean, it 's not clear who this person is, but somebody is passing on <laughs> somebody is passing on correspondence <laughs> uh, and resolutions to the Russians, um, which have been translated from english um, into russian um, uh, but i 'm um, not quite sure who this person is i mean they um, <sighs> To be honest, I don't think the Russians actually have a very good eye, clear idea about mm-hmm. Curzon and his personality. Um, his book um, on uh, the Trans Caspian Railway, which is really, I think, one of, the yeah. two, one of the two best English language travel accounts about Central Asia, yeah. the other is Eugene Schuyler's um, book, um, which is somewhat earlier. Um, and it's interesting to me because um, Curzon is interested in more. Than just the question of the Russian military threat to India, he's interested in how Russian colonialism works and whether or not it resembles that in British India, and he has some uh, he has some very insightful comments um, to make about this. But although Schuyler's book um, was widely circulated amongst Russian officers and caused quite a lot of outrage because he criticised Russian rule to a large extent, I don't think Curzon's ever was, um, and. Um, the Russians are certainly quite—they're quite jumpy on the Pamir frontier, um, I suppose, were, uh, during during Curzon's Viceroyalty. royalty. Um, but I don't think they view him—I don't think they view his presence there with any enormous ap- apprehensiveness. At least not until the invasion of Tibet, which does upset them um, to some extent because they consider themselves to have well interests um, in the region. But um, the. Um, the difficulty, or, well, the difficulties which were caused, such as they were um, during Curzon's viceroyalty, are, well, they're not completely smoothed out in 1907, but they are, they are, pa- the cracks are papered over long enough to sustain the entente between Russia and Britain until the outbreak of the, fir- of the first World War, um, I would say. But Curzon, yes, Curzon, um, I with, I opened and closed with Curzon because um, he was one of the very few Englishmen who actually thought that Russian imperialism was, worth, was worthy of study. Lots and lots of Englishmen wrote about Russia in Central Asia, and they wrote about it purely in terms of the threat to British India. And Curzon was actually interested in you know, what does Russian colonialism look like, which was exactly what I was interested in um, in the book.
1: Um, that's um, actually fascinating because I mean, my thesis was about girls and myself, but uh, I'm afraid it's been over an hour and we'll have to let you go now. But uh, thanks for sharing this and thanks for doing this for the New Books Network. And we'd obviously love to discuss your future works with you as well.
0: Well, not so well. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Tara. Um, uh, it's yeah. been on- an honor to participate.
1: So far, A nice comparative study of the line and the bay. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.